The following program is a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Service in Omaha, Nebraska. RTBS programming is intended solely for individuals who cannot read conventional print due to a disability. Ineligible listeners risk infringing on copyright law, and RTBS is not responsible for any violations that may occur. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Veterans Hour. I'm your host, Dick Harrington, and we're coming to you from the studios of Radio Talking Book Network in Omaha, Nebraska. The Veterans Hour brings you stories of special interest to veterans. We use military and veteran-related stories from sources such as the Offutt Air Pulse, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Times, other related stories. good one is military.com. These stories help keep us veterans up to date on what's going on in the military world. Before we begin our broadcast, I'd like to provide you with uh, some information of particular use to veterans and their family members here in our listening area. Uh, First, a word about myself. I'm a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant who proudly served in Vietnam as well as numerous other places throughout the world during my 26-year Air Force career. And I volunteer at the Omaha VA Hospital. I have done so for the past 10 years. And I serve as the uh, chairman of the Omaha VA Hospital Veterans Advisory Group. And our mission at the uh, Veterans Advisory Group is to ensure that every vet gets the absolute best care possible at the VA hospital. If you want to get a hold of me, I can be reached at 402-292-0283. Or you can text or call me at 402 416-6152 516-6152 on my cell. The VA hospital has considerable resources for visually impaired vets. And the president of the Omaha chapter of the Blinded Vets Association is retired senior master sergeant Sean Wilbur, who can be reached at 402-995-3188. Sean works closely with Ms. Ronita Bland, who heads up the visual impairment services team at the VA hospital. She also can be reached at that same number, 402-995-3188. As a reminder, Radio Talking Book Network programming is also streamed live. Individuals can listen to RTBM on their computer, tablet, or mobile device by going to rtbs.org and selecting the Listen Live option button, or by using their Amazon device and asking Alexa for Radio Talking Book. And you can also get us on Google Home. We'd love to hear from you. So please give us a call here at RTBN at 402-572-3003 and let us know how we're doing or anything that might be on your mind. Finally, we pause to remember those incredibly brave veterans who gave their all to our country to preserve freedom. And now, the Veterans Hour. This is John Bowen for Radio Talking Book Nebraska, and this is the Veterans Hour. We will begin today by resuming some articles in the May 26th Air Pulse. Our first article is entitled, Tabletop Exercise Establishes BOS Operations for Lead Wing. Dayline off at Air Force Base, Nebraska. The 55th Wing held a two-day base operation support tabletop exercise to identify the required manpower and equipment needed for a lead wing to operate against a near-peer adversary 
in a contested environment, May 16th and 17th. This is part of 55th Wing's pivot to become a lead wing under Agile Combat Deployment, said Major James Black, Air Combat Command Agile Battle Lab Director of Operations. A BOS is figuring out how is the 55th Wing going to establish bases to enable combat sortie generation and all the things that incorporates. The goal of this exercise is to ask the right questions so when you do it for real, you're going in with the right mindset. The team of about 50 NCOs and officers from across all base agencies ran through scenarios and talked through their minimum requirements for each of them and any potential impacts on other agencies and operations. The participants represent the agencies responsible for BOS activities, largely from the Mission Support and Medical Group, as well as a few other agencies that support the base, explained First Lieutenant Joseph Zagowiz, 55th Wing Logistics Program Manager. Everybody here has a strong understanding of what their team does, but bringing them all together gives us the chance to work through how their responsibilities overlap with one another and what we need to make sure those teams are able to work effectively side-by-side in a crisis or contested situation. The Warhawks went over a variety of potential scenarios that could arise while operating in a contested environment. By having each unit talk through their role in the particular situation, they developed a checklist and identified items requiring pre-planning for each scenario. We're going to take the pages of notes we compiled and create checklists so when we forward deploy, we know what we need to be looking at beforehand and identify risks our leadership may need to take, he said. By pre-identifying them, we can streamline waiver authority or be prepared to make hard decisions and have the information beforehand and be ready for anything that arises. This is the third lead wing exercise held by the Fightin' 55th since being designated as a lead wing in January. The 55th wing is absolutely head and shoulders above any other lead wing in the Air Combat Command, said Black. They're absolutely killing it and asking all the right questions, questions well above their pay grade. You guys are doing a great job, and I'm really happy to see the progress you're making. Our next article is entitled, Offit-Based Lab Could Be in Store for New $50 Million Facility. After operating for nearly a decade in a temporary location at Offit Air Force Base, a Defense Department laboratory that identifies the remains of missing U.S. military members could be in store for a new home near the base. Representative Don Bacon proposed an amendment to the House Armed Services Committee calling on the department to accelerate planning for the construction and relocation of the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency Lab, otherwise known as the DPAA. The committee passed Bacon's proposal unanimously this year, amending the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022, an annual piece of legislation that appropriates defense funding. The department came forward with a preliminary plan to build a two-story, 
65,000 square foot building, more than double the size of the current facility, which is 31,000 square feet and more than 80 years old. Bacon said the new lab will be in a different location near Offit. The estimated cost of the new lab is about $50 million, which will be considered in the federal budget for fiscal year 2024, Bacon said. The timeline for the construction has not been finalized. The DPAA lab is responsible for the identification of hundreds of missing soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines from past wars. Last month, the lab identified the remains of a World War II pilot who earned the Medal of Honor in 1943. It was also involved in the six-year effort to identify the remains of sailors and marines who went missing after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It helps bring closure to family, said Bacon, a retired brigadier general who previously served as commander of the Offutt-based 55th Wing. While a base commander, Bacon helped persuade DPAA to select Offutt as the location for its second lab when it was looking to expand beyond its original site in Hawaii. The new lab opened in 2013 inside the historic Glen L. Martin bomber plant where workers from Nebraska and Iowa built B-26 and B-29 bombers during World War II. From the beginning, Bacon said the space was always meant to be temporary. Discussions about building a new permanent DPAA lab had already begun in 2020. Not only is the building old and set to be demolished by 2030, Bacon said it is still used for several other purposes and isn't customized to meet the lab's needs. When we moved into this space, we always knew we would have to move again, said Franklin Damon, the laboratory director, in 2020. The new facility, in contrast, will be tailor-made for the lab's operations, Bacon said. The make and design will have the mission in mind, Bacon said. According to a document from Bacon's office, the next step for the project will be the Department of Defense completing the project plans and designs, which is expected before the end of the year. Bacon said his job is to ensure Congress follows through and approves the funding for the lab in the fiscal year 2024 budget. Our next article is entitled Future of Nursing, Telehealth, More Innovation, Maybe Some Robots. Dateline Falls Church, Virginia. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has fast-tracked many changes to the military health system and forced all providers, especially nurses, to innovate at near quantum speed with agility and flexibility. Nurses are the backbone of daily health care operations. In the future, nurses will continue to play a vital role in the evolution of modern health care. Nursing will take on more leadership and strategic roles to transform the healthcare system, better, better advocate for nursing personnel, and integrate across care to enhance the multidisciplinary team, said Brigadier General Anita Fleeg, Defense Health Agency Chief Nursing Officer. As the DHA observes 2022 Nurses Week, Fleeg and other top DHA nursing officers talked about changes on the horizon for military nursing and the details of how the career field will evolve in the coming years. 
They said the pandemic has underscored the connection between health and readiness. Virtual healthcare options will continue to expand and robotics may play a prominent role in standardized care in the future, while continued education for nurses will be essential to maintaining a ready medical force. Working in a joint environment within the integrated DHA workforce will improve efficiencies for nurses, allowing them to spend more time on patient care by having standardized policies, procedures, and tools across the services, Fleek said. She pointed to the collaboration already underway in the local healthcare markets. For example, she said, Navy nurses in the Puget Sound market help backfill at the Madigan Army Medical Center and vice versa. The same collaboration is ongoing in the Colorado market, she said. Air Force nurses are assisting at the Army's Fort Carson Evans Army Community Hospital. The pandemic has opened the doors for nursing to see what could change as to how we care for patients in the future, using technology in a new way and using data to assist in bed expansion or use of resources more effectively, said Army Colonel Jennifer Mino, DHA Deputy Chief Nursing Officer. The pandemic has required more precision and flexibility, including virtual health care, remote patient monitoring, and touchless medication refills to optimize care delivery, Fleek said. The future will mean more virtual health care and telehealth services for certain specialties, such as dermatology, behavioral health, primary care, urgent care, and obstetrics, while maintaining the focus on high-quality patient care and increased access to care, Fleek explained. The expansion of virtual care will help save lives on the battlefield and improve care during humanitarian crises and future pandemics. Additionally, at home, virtual health will continue to provide MHS beneficiaries with more access and flexibility to get assistance and appointments. The COVID-19 pandemic has taxed nursing staffs beyond anything in recent memory as they cared for both COVID-19 patients and maintained routine healthcare operations. The pandemic has prompted the need for us to relook at staffing models and ratios to optimize utilization of the workforce while ensuring safe, high-quality care delivery and positive outcomes, Fleeg said. The past two-plus years also have seen a greater awareness and need to address burnout and retention, Fleeg continued. Keeping nurses themselves healthy is a key priority for the entire health system, Menno said. The, uh, the more healthy you are makes you more resilient in multiple ways, from being physically healthy, having mental well-being, and spiritual well-being, she said. These three are all part of Total Force Fitness, the Department of Defense's framework for improving holistic health and performance aligned to one's mission, culture, and identity. She pointed to the increasing use of mobile applications as one way to monitor health across the military community. These apps are available to help decrease stress, monitor exercise habits, and support healthy diets. Nurses can use that data to assist in educating and teaching patients how to care for themselves 
as well as recognize triggers that may be a risk to their care, Minow said. If we maintain a healthier mindset, it prepares the body to fight off disease and illness. If we use it to help our patients to be healthier and do preventive activities, that would change potential outcomes for the future. Nurses have been the integrally, integrally involved in newer surgical techniques, such as robotic surgery, since the 2000s. Some things never change, Menno explained. Nurses in the operating room will continue to be the eyes and ears for the patient. They will continue to ensure that the patient is receiving the best care with high quality and safety. Nurses on robotic surgical teams must demonstrate a very high level of professional knowledge and be experts in robotic technology. This is demonstrated by playing a key role in data collection, analyzing trends and outcomes, and identifying safety issues, Fleeg said. The nursing team will need to continue to maintain sterile techniques and ensure the integrity of the surgical field, Minow said. The team will need to communicate more in the operating room as technologies evolve. And nurses will use evidence-based teamwork tools from team strategies and tools to enhance performance and patient safety, also known as team steps, to support a highly reliable organization, Menno added. Team steps is an evidence-based teamwork system designed to enhance patient outcomes by improving communication and other teamwork skills among healthcare professionals. Artificial intelligence is already a technology nurses use in everyday care via mobile health and alerts in joint telecritical care network units. These are an important force multiplier, leveraging virtual health resources to extend critical care expertise and treatment at a distance. And without a doubt, there are more changes to come. AI and machine learning will assist nurses by using data to help improve the efficiencies of systems and processes, but those technologies are still in their infancy. The pandemic has also meant an increased capability and use of our nursing workforce by ensuring that personnel are equipped with the education and training to perform at the highest level and scope of practice and license, Fleeg explained. Minow said she sees more nurses getting certifications to be subject matter experts in their field. The increased number of nurses obtaining their doctorate of nurse practice will also grow now that the American Association of Colleges of Nursing has endorsed the movement of advanced nursing practice from a master's degree to the doctorate level, Menno predicted. This doctorate develops nurses to look at process improvement and holistically at improving systems and processes that include other disciplines in patient care. Menno explained that hybrid nursing roles dis discussions have already taken place. We see nurses now that are doing hybrid nursing roles due to their versatility and agility. Nurses are not only at the bedside, but they are also clinical nurse specialists, research scientists, and advanced practice providers, educators, and health system leaders. Our next article is entitled, 
Department of Defense's largest annual IT cyber power event resumes in-person attendance. Dateline Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. The Department of the Air Force IT and Cyber Power Education and Training event returns to in-person attendance after going virtual in 2020 and 2021 due to the pandemic. Historically known as the Air Force IT and Cyber Power Education and Training event, the name change is more reflective of the Department of the Air Force's role in both air and space. This year's event is August 29th through the 31st in Montgomery, Alabama. To register, visit www.dafitc.com. The Defense Department's largest annual information technology and cyber event returns to in-person attendance this summer. Over the last two years, the Department of the Air Force IT and Cyber Power Education and Training event was held virtually due to the pandemic. This event brings together experts from government, industry, and academia to talk through the digital challenges that confront our airmen and guardians, said Lauren Nossenberger, Department of the Air Force Chief Information Officer. It's a fantastic opportunity to network, learn, and share ideas on how to further our nation's interests through IT and cyber power. We look forward to some superb keynote addresses from leaders both within the Air Force and Space Force and the private sector. This year's lineup of government keynote speakers includes Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall, Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown Jr., Dr. Lisa Costa, Space Force Chief Technology and Innovation Officer, Lauren Nossenberger, Department of the Air Force Chief Information Officer, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, Defense Information Systems Agency Director and Commander of Joint Force Headquarters, Department of Defense Information Network. Industry keynote speakers slated to present are Dr. Elizabeth Churchill, Director of UX, User Experience, Google. John Kindervag, Senior Vice President, Cybersecurity Strategy, ON2IT. Wendy Whitmore, Senior Vice President, Unit 42, Palo Alto Network. With the theme of a resilient digital air and space force enabling deterrence through cyber, the event will draw from the following major topic areas for breakout seminars. Integrated deterrence, a digital air and space force, next-generation networking, operationally-focused cybersecurity, enabling digital talent and human capital. Again, to register for the DAFITC or for more information, visit www.dafitc.com. Next up, we will move to the Thursday, June 2nd edition of the Air Pulse. And our first article is entitled, Annual OAC Offit Appreciation Day Picnic, Just Around the Corner. Dayline Offit Air Force Base, Nebraska. The Offit Advisory Council Offit Appreciation Day Picnic returns to the Bellevue Berry Farm from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on June 3rd 
2022. Nearly 10,000 Team Offit members are expected to attend the event, which had been a staple of the base calendar for more than 25 years prior to the pandemic, which forced its cancellation in 2021 and in 2020. For those of our Offit family who are new to the base and have never attended, I strongly encourage you and your families to attend. It's an approved alternate duty location. Take advantage, said Colonel Mark Howard, 55th Wing Vice Commander. An incredible amount of planning and work goes into this event, and we couldn't be more grateful to the OAC for bringing it back after a two-year delay. Due to limited parking, the OAC is encouraging everyone to take advantage of the free shuttles which run from the rear parking lot of the King Dining Facility as well as the Capehart Chapel and Bellevue West High School. The shuttles will be running back and forth all day starting at 10.30 a.m., said Herman Colvin, OAC Picnic Coordinator. They'll drop you off right at the entrance and take you back to your car at the end. It's very convenient. The free event includes music from the Heartland of America Band, Bounce Houses, Rock Walls, Face Painting, Little Pony Rides, and Hay Rack Rides, among other things. In addition, members of the 501st Legion will be interacting with guests all day, which is a brand new addition for 2022. We want to make this event the best one we've ever had, Colvin said. We host this event to show how much we appreciate what everyone does in support of our nation, especially the families who have to spend time apart from their loved ones for large parts of the year. The OAC has also teamed up with Green Bellevue and Hillside Solutions to make it a zero-waste event. We are so pleased to be part of the production of this great military appreciation event, said Ruth Richter, Green Bellevue. We have a goal to divert 90% of the waste from the event from the landfill so it can be recycled, repurposed, or composted. The containers are clearly marked and volunteers are on hand to answer questions. Members from Offit Against Drunk Driving will also be available throughout the day and Colvin would like to remind all attendees that pets are not allowed at the Bellevue Berry Farm. Please keep your pets at home, he said. The Bellevue Berry Farm is so supportive of this event that we know we need to be good stewards and follow their rules. For additional information on the picnic, please call the 55th Wing Public Affairs Office at 402-294-3663. The next article is entitled, Off at Air Force Base Hosts Battle of the Paws Canine Competition. The 55th Security Forces Squadron hosted Battle of the Paws during Police Week on May 19th. The canine competition consisted of 13 teams of 55th SFS and local law enforcement members who were judged on three categories, obedience, aggression, and detection. We started with an obedience challenge where we placed toys and decoys on the field to see if the dog would break their focus from their handler, said Senior Airman Cassie Smith, 55th SFS Competition Coordinator. Then, during the tactical obedience portion, we discharged blank rounds of gunfire to see if the dogs got distracted. 
The aggression portion showcased fastest dog, best drive, best control, hardest hitting, and quickest obedience run. During the detection portion, the dogs were challenged to recognize narcotics inside a building. I was really excited to be a part of this, said Smith. It was an honor to be a part of the first ever canine competition here and work with handlers that aren't military working dog handlers. Judges determined how well the dogs and handlers worked together during the competition, which demonstrated their skills while commemorating the sacrifice of the men, women, and canines who've lost their lives in the line of duty. Police Week is a special and solemn week across the country that celebrates and honors law enforcement professionals and their sacrifices, said Captain Jennifer Blanton, 55th SFS Operations Officer. It was an honor to host the competition here because we were able to thank and honor our local law enforcement brothers and sisters in person. It means so much to come together to celebrate and showcase our capabilities during Police Week. The winners of Battle of the Paws canine competition are, first place, went to Officer Ken McClure and Police Service Dog Aries from Council Bluffs Police Department. Second place, Officer Jay Weininger and Police Service Dog Riggs from Douglas County Sheriff's Department. And third place, Officer Alex Clement and Police Service Dog Hauser from Council Bluffs Police Department. Our next article is entitled, Artist, Pilot, Playboy. Omaha man shot down over China in World War II lives on through his family. A name etched in a marble headstone, a letter tucked away in a dresser drawer, an eternally youthful portrait in uniform. For so many Gold Star families of the era, little else survived of their young men who died in World War II. Not in Bruce Jepson's family. The women who loved him would not, will not, allow grief to blot out the memory of the young Omaha artist-turned-airman who perished in the flaming crash of his P-51 Mustang in China during the waning days of the war. Jepson's drawing skills earned him early acclaim, including a job as an illustrator with a local advertising firm right after graduating from Omaha Central High School in 1937, and inclusion of his work in a display at the Jocelyn Art Museum. His art teacher called him very gifted, and he hoped to study at the prestigious Art Institute of Chicago. Young Jepson cultivated a playboy image, dressing smartly, smoking a pipe, and carrying on an affair with a married fellow artist and pilot. Yet he was devoted to his mother and three sisters, who had been left penniless when his father died of cancer at age 42. He supported them with the earnings from his budding career in advertising. It was Jepson's love of flying, though, that led to the tragic end of his promising life. It propelled him into the pilot training in Omaha after the outbreak of World War II, the Army Air Corps, and the cockpit of a P-51 as one of Major General Claire Cheneau's famous Flying Tigers. He wanted to be an artist, and he wanted to fly P-51s. 
He wanted to fight for his country, said his niece, Julianne Kupak Cambridge of Omaha. He did it all. Bruce Jepson's body was never returned from China, so there's no grave to decorate on Memorial Day, just a name on the wall of the fallen at Omaha's Memorial Park. But his family doesn't need to lay a flower on a headstone to celebrate Jepson's life of promise. His mother, Edwina, and sisters Chris, Grace, and Harriet told stories of his life and his talent, saved every letter he wrote and every sketch he ever, sketch he ever drew. Jepson's art now decorates the walls of Cambridge's home and the homes of her siblings. His letters and sketches and photos fill scrapbooks that are lovingly paged through by his surviving family nearly 80 years after his death. Even more, Jepson's family drew inspiration from his talent. All three of his sisters pursued careers as commercial artists, as did their children, including Cambridge herself and her siblings, a cousin and her daughter, Leah Brown. I grew up hearing all the stories about Uncle Bruce. Our family has been inspired by his creativity, Brown said. He's my hero. Cambridge's mother, Grace Jepson Kupak, idolized her brother and built a career as a fashion illustrator for the former department store chain Richmond Gordman, often drawing retro models resembling the ones her brother drew as an Omaha ad man in the late 1930s and early 1940s. She fervently hoped that his story would be widely shared. Grace died in May of 2021 at the age of 91. Today would be her 93rd birthday. Cambridge added genealogical research to the many stories of Bruce and shared them on her webpage, Ink Wash Letters, World War II. It was my mother's lifelong wish that her brother be recognized and remembered, Cambridge said. Uncle Bruce had no offspring. I am his only hope as a memorial to his life. Bruce Jepson's life began in 1917, a stone's throw from the beach in what is now Titusville, Florida. His mother, Edwina, was from Alabama, and his father, Harry, was the son of Danish immigrants who settled near Elba, Nebraska, and moved to Florida in the early 1900s. The couple married in 1915. Harry worked for his family's orange grove and land development business. Their second child, Christina, was born in 1920. Bruce developed his twin passions for art and flying during his Florida boyhood. He was dazzled by the airplanes that flew from an airfield near their home, and Edwina passed along a passion for painting. He was totally a beach barefoot fisherman artist. He would always take his art pad everywhere, Cambridge said. The family's fortunes flagged after the fruit and land business went bust in the late 1920s. Grace was born in 1929. They moved to Omaha after Harry became ill with throat cancer. He died in September 1931, three weeks before Edwina gave birth to their youngest daughter. She was named Harriet in his memory. Widowed with four young children, Edwina did her best to keep the family together. She opened a small cafe for Creighton University students and gave piano lessons in their home on 24th Street. She delivered lessons on Shakespeare in the Omaha Public Schools. In 
Bruce used his growing art skills to help the family's finances. He visited stores downtown with his brushes and painted ads in their windows for a dollar or two. When he was in high school, his work won wider acclaim. One of his paintings was selected for a national exhibit of young artists at New York's Rockefeller Center, and he won a scholarship in a regional art competition sponsored by the Kansas City Art Institute. He had a loft apartment where he sat and painted, Cambridge said. He would skip school and paint all day. But the Jepsons' financial fortunes didn't improve much. Edwina made the difficult decision to place Grace and Harriet, who are eight and six, in an orphanage for girls in Fremont, just after Christmas in 1937. They lived there for four years, though Edwina, Chris, and Bruce visited every week. Bruce often drew pictures for his sisters. For her ninth birthday, he gave Grace an intricate pen-and-ink sketch of her movie hero, the child actor Shirley Temple. Straight out of high school, Bruce Jepson landed a job with Allen & Reynolds, a prominent local advertising firm. He built a career and a reputation. Photos and hand-drawn self-portraits show him well-dressed, with tousled hair, and a self-confident grin. He had great ambitions. He would pursue the best that life had to offer, Cambridge wrote in her blog. Soon Jepson was gaining lucrative freelance jobs to supplement his ad agency income. In the summer of 1941, Jepson traveled to Mexico, a rare jaunt in those days. In his passport, he described himself as an artista. He attended bullfights and, of course, painted. The young artista had never lost his love of flying. His sisters would long remember the model airplanes that hung from the ceilings of his attic apartment. The December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor pushed him further. Jepson started flight lessons in Omaha the following spring and earned a student pilot certificate with an eye toward joining the Army Air Corps. He was earning enough that by 1942 the family was able to move Grace and Harriet back home from the orphanage. Chris was now in her 20s herself, a budding commercial artist whose talent as a fashion illustrator would eventually rival her brother's. As the chief breadwinner for his widowed mother and sisters, Jepsons could have opted out of the military, but he yearned to serve when his country needed him. He didn't tell anybody at first, Cambridge said. His mother tried to get him not to go, but he just had to. He had to go. Edwina, Grace, and Harriet saw him off at the bus depot when he left for military flight training in San Antonio, Texas, in March of 1943. He wrote jaunty letters to his family and friends in Omaha, illustrated with funny drawings of airmen and their planes. He drew pinup girls for his fellow cadets, attended Saturday night dances, and sent money home. Jepson trained at several sites in Texas, before earning his wings in February of 1944. He traveled back to Omaha that month for 10 days of leave. He took his sisters up for a flight and treated them to lunch at King Fong Cafe on South 16th Street, his favorite restaurant. He spent evenings drinking with friends at the White Horse Bar in the Old Regis Hotel. He reveled in what turned out to be his last visit to his adopted hometown.
The ten days went too fast, he wrote to his family a few days after he returned to Texas. But the war won't last much longer. Then I can be with you all. I wanted a pair of wings and I wanted to fly and fight my part of the war in the air, he added. Because I have achieved that end, I am satisfied. Jepson packed a lot of living into the last year of his life. In April 1944, he was assigned to a base in Venice, Florida, not far from Edwina's relatives in St. Petersburg. He trained to fly fighters. He reconnected with his aunts, uncles, and cousins while he waited for an overseas assignment. That summer, Edwina's family persuaded her to move back to Florida, in part to be near her son. But she was too late. Before mother and sister arrived by bus from Omaha, Jepson got orders to India to fly P-51 Mustangs with the 529th Fighter Squadron, his dream assignment. He visited the pyramids during a stopover in Egypt and fished and drank with his buddies in India. In November, the unit was reassigned to Chinoz Hot Shop 14th Air Force and flew over the hump to Kunming, China. Jepson's pen was rarely idle. Besides sketching the sights and his friends, he drew a Christmas poster of Santa Claus and an angel for the Red Cross. He painted nose art on his squadron's planes. Jepson flew his first combat mission in early spring and chalked up nine more by April 25, 1945. On that day, he was part of a flight of four Mustangs sent to attack a rail bridge in northeast China. After hitting the target, his P-51 was crippled by Japanese ground fire in Shangxi province, about 250 miles southwest of Beijing. His plane crashed and burned outside a small village called Dongguokun. Jepson's wingman saw no parachute. They circled the burning aircraft, but they could offer no help. He was gone. My grandmother was devastated, Cambridge said. She didn't get out of bed for two weeks. Edwina's torpor did not last long. She still had to raise her daughters. They stayed in Florida, at least for a time. Grace graduated from high school in St. Petersburg in 1947, and soon after left on a bus to join Chris in Omaha. Chris had built her own successful career, illustrating for local department stores and fashion boutiques. Grace landed a job in the mailroom at Mutual of Omaha while designating, or I'm sorry, de- designing pamphlets and ads for them. But she lost her job in 1954 after she was married to Frank Kupak Jr. and became pregnant with the first of her four children. She continued to freelance, though, and remained active in art clubs. Grace's career as a fashion artist took off in the 1970s when she returned to work full-time with Richmond Gordman, eventually becoming the chain's head illustrator. Harriet followed Grace's path to Omaha and a career in fashion illustration. She rose to become art director for Brandeis and Yonkers, and later was co-owner of an ad agency. All three had highly successful careers, emulating their brother, whose long shadow they always felt. They were always in awe of Bruce, Cambridge said. A generation later, Cambridge too studied art, 
painted, and developed her own fashion portfolio. But by the time she was breaking into the field in the 1980s, fashion sketches were giving way to photography. So she moved into fashion photo styling. She studied art history and managed a photo gallery. About 20 years ago, she began to study and curate her own family's history and art. Cambridge found a box of letters belonging to her resilient grandmother, Edwina, who died in 1978 at the age of 87. She read them over and over again. I felt so much a part of her life and her tragedies, Cambridge said. She interviewed her mother and her aunts, who loved to tell the stories of their childhood, especially the ones about Bruce. He had achieved so much in his short life, she said. What he was unable to achieve was always on their minds. What might have been? One mystery was never solved. What happened to Bruce's body? Edwina made inquiries to the army during her lifetime, but she never received a definitive answer. Through her research, Cambridge learned that Bruce Jepson's saga did not end with his death. About ten years ago, she connected with retired Air Force Brigadier General John Reynolds, who had served as a defense attaché in China during the 1980s. He told her that Jepson's body had been reburied several times after it was recovered from the crashed P-51. And in 1985, Reynolds and authorities from the Army's Central Identification Laboratory in Hawaii, the predecessor of today's Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, which also now has a lab at off at Air Force Base, very nearly recovered his remains. Their failure to bring him home troubled Reynolds. The former attaché, who died in April, told the story in a lengthy 2019 article in Air Power History magazine. Reynolds said that Japanese soldiers had gathered around Jepson's P-51 after it crashed. They stripped his body of valuables and ordered Chinese villagers to bury him. They did so then reburied him two days later after dogs had disturbed the makeshift grave. A month later, Jepson was buried again in the village cemetery, this time in a wooden coffin, what Reynolds called an extraordinary gesture by people who were grateful for the assistance of American air crews during the war. In early 1946, Army authorities learned about Jepson's burial in Deng Kun but they were unable to visit because of fighting between Chinese Communist and Nationalist forces. The Communist victory in 1949 and the former Allies' icy relationship during the Cold War ended any hope of further recovery of American remains for nearly 40 years. In February 1985, as a goodwill gesture, Chinese diplomatic authorities invited Reynolds and the Hawaii laboratory team, to visit the village where Jepson had been buried. Chinese officials and villagers escorted them to the cemetery and showed the Americans to his grave. But as the U.S. anthropologists carefully unearthed the remains, they realized that they were of an Asian man, of a different size and age than the Caucasian pilot. The Americans were quickly hustled away. Only later did Reynolds find out, through a diplomatic contact, what had most likely happened. In Dongguo-kun, only two people had ever been buried in a wooden coffin, the American pilot and a Chinese martyr of the 1949 revolution. Years earlier, the Chinese martyr had been 
disinterred and his body moved to a cemetery in a distant province nearer his home, one reserved for national heroes. I think you moved the wrong casket, Reynolds told the diplomat. The accounting agency maintains a file on Jepson in the hope of someday recovering his body. In 2017, Cambridge, her mother, her husband, and her brother met with agency analysts assigned to the case. It allowed my mother to feel that she herself made efforts to help in the search for her brother's remains, Cambridge wrote on her website. Also to know that he is not forgotten. Reynolds told her that the fraught relations between U.S. and China make it unlikely Jepson's body will ever be brought home to Nebraska. But Cambridge and her family take some comfort in the likelihood that he is buried among Chinese heroes, even if by mistake. I think he'd be fine with that. He loved the Chinese people, she said. It's a sad ending, but it's kind of spiritual. Leah Brown said she feels a bit conflicted about his fate but she sees his legacy in her own family and their art. I'd like to have him home, she said, but his story is being told. That's what's important. Our next article is entitled, A Time to Remember, A Look at Holiday History, Travel, and Celebrations. Holiday History. Memorial Day is a day of remembrance for those who died in service to their country. The holiday was officially proclaimed in 1868 to honor Union and Confederate soldiers and was expanded after World War I to honor those who died in all wars. Today, Memorial Day honors over one million men and women who have died in military service since the Civil War. The Moment of Remembrance This takes place at 3 p.m. local time on Memorial Day to honor veterans with a moment of silence. Some statistics about the celebrations around Memorial Day. $15 billion of meat and seafood uh, is bought for those celebrations. About 60% of people plan to barbecue. And every second, 818 hot dogs are eaten between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Now, as far as lives lost, U.S. Armed Service deaths from Revolutionary War through post-9-11 Gulf War era, there were 656,000 veterans who died in battle and 552,000 veterans who died in service but not in battle. That means 96% the percentage of veterans who died after their military service. Next article has to do with gas. With the busy summer travel season approaching, many are wondering how high U.S. gas prices could get. Prices hit a nationwide record on May 24th, $4.59.8 a gallon, according to AAA. This comes after a J.P. Morgan analyst predicted a cruel summer with gas prices potentially hitting a nationwide average of at least $6.00 in a global commodities oil flash note published May 17th. With expectations of strong driving demand, traditionally the U.S. summer driving season starts on Memorial Day and lasts until Labor Day in early September. U.S. retail prices could surge another 37% by August, 
to $6.20 a gallon national average. Here's what experts say as summer nears. Typically, refiners produce more gasoline ahead of the summer road trip season, building up inventories. But this year, since mid-April, U.S. gasoline inventories have fallen counter-seasonally and today sit at the lowest seasonal levels since 2019, the J.P. Morgan report said. The disconnect between supply and a higher seasonal demand is why the analysts predicted prices could hit $6, a price never seen before, according to the report. Patrick DeHaan, Gas Buddy's head of petroleum analysis, told McClatchy News that for various reasons, roughly half a dozen refineries have been lost in the U.S. since 2019, and amidst demand, that's very high. There's a diminished ability for refineries to meet that demand, so they're going to be critical this summer delivering enough fuel, he added. Robert Johnston, an adjunct senior research scholar at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, said prices will likely stay high this summer to encourage conservation and lower demand. That is the job of the market at this point. Meanwhile, DeHaan responded to J.P. Morgan's $6.20 a gallon national average prediction May 18th on Twitter, writing, This is not a guarantee. However, there's little margin for error. $5 is a strong possibility, but $6, not impossible, but improbable for now. When asked why the $6 range gas prices prediction was improbable, DeHaan told McClatchy News that President Joe Biden would likely pull out more tools to try and bring prices down, given how high that would be. If it were to happen, I certainly think that there would be a significant toll on the economy that would likely cause demand to go down much sooner than we reach that $6 or $6.20 a gallon mark. <clears throat> Abraham Rajendran, who is also an adjunct research scholar at Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, and the head of Global Oil, Downstream Markets, and North America Energy Research for Energy Intelligence, told McClatchy News that he agrees the impact of demand is a key point in rising prices, but views J.P. Morgan's $6.20 a gallon prediction as probably a little bit of a stretch. However, he believes there is a possibility for gasoline prices to reach around $5 per gallon nationwide average during the peak of summer around the 4th of July. You sort of have this big rush around the 4th of July, then things taper off to some degree, Rajendran said. As you kind of get closer to Labor Day, you have another kind of surge in demand. One issue driving summer demand, according to Rajendran, is high diesel prices and how this tends to filter over to the jet fuel market. Airline ticket prices have been increasing and will continue to increase, he said. As a result, for folks looking to travel over the summer, instead of flying, they may end up driving more. Regarding the possibility of the nationwide average reaching $5 a gallon this summer, DeHaan said that's also not a guarantee, but there are conditions that could push us there, conditions that could worsen over the course of the summer. At a time that demand remains high and the economy is recovering, my fear is that any small disruption could morph into a price event that does bring the national average over $5 a gallon. Now, I don't think we'll get there without some sort of drastic departure from where we stand today on a few different issues, mainly Russia and Ukraine and the state of the economy.
Meanwhile, Johnston said a major factor driving gas prices is a combination of high global crude oil prices and inflation. Mm-hmm. Global crude prices are high because of strong demand, low spare capacity, and a reduction in Russian supply because of the military situation and associated sanctions, he noted. Dehan said the Russia and Ukraine situation is significant due to the responses that it has invoked from countries such as essentially cutting Russian oil off from the global market. Now, the condition that could push gas prices to the $5 range is if a major hurricane occurs, because this has impacted refining and oil production in the past, according to Dehan. Hurricane season in the Atlantic region usually lasts from June until the end of November, according to National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In the eastern Pacific region, it begins May 15th and goes through late November. There's just a lot of different factors that are playing into, you know, what we're paying at the pump, Don said. Rajendran and Johnston said gas prices could be expected to ease after Labor Day on September 5th. Dahan said that there may be some relief in August, barring a hurricane, but I think more reliable relief will start coming in mid and late September as demand starts going down more noticeably. What typically happens is prices generally fall in the fall, and they spring in the spring, he said. Again, that could be subject to change depending on geopolitical tensions and other issues that could affect supply or demand. Our next article is entitled, Offit Hockey Team to Compete in Memorial Day Tournament. The Offit Air Force Base Marauders participated in the Armed Services Hockey Association Memorial Day Weekend Tournament in Austin, Texas. The event is hosted yearly by the ASHA, and the games were set to run from May 26th through the 30th. They used to have it in Las Vegas, and they had it in Nashville last year, which was a really good time, said Master Sergeant Chris Popima, 55th Maintenance Squadron Accessories Flight Chief. We took second place last year, so we're hoping to make it to the championship and come out with a first or second this year. This event was founded by Marty Mueller, a retired U.S. Coast Guard Lieutenant Commander, in 2002. The first tournament was held at the Santa Fe Station, Las Vegas, in July of 2003. I love being able to represent off at Air Force Base at the Armed Services Hockey Association Memorial Day Tournament, said Tech Sergeant Thomas Frederick, 338th Combat Training Squadron. Being able to bring together a group of past and present 55th Wing members to compete against some of the best military hockey teams is the highlight of my year. Offit has participated every year for the past 12 years. The Offit Marauders hockey hockey team is a group of team Offit members who have come together throughout the years to represent the base. This has become the perfect storm for networking and mentorship. It has been eye-opening to sit and hear Air Force perspectives from some of these guys, said Papima. 
The tournament is hosted through funding by the Armed Services Hockey Association, which holds hockey events for our nation's warriors and brings down the costs military hockey players must pay out of pocket to attend the events. The team is comprised of Offit members past and present. The team's current co-captain, Adam Canty, departed Offit in 2019, but still plays with the team at the tournament each year. The best thing about the Offit hockey team is that it has connected me with my lifelong friend, said Canty. Provided me an avenue to play a sport I love. Even now, I still talk to all the Offit guys on a daily basis and still assist in running the team by registering us for the Armed Services Tournament every year. I can honestly say the Offit hockey team has changed my life in a very positive way. Well, that's all the time we have today. This is John Bowen for the Veterans Hour, and it has been a pleasure.